We continue now our series in Matthew's Gospel. I ask you to turn to the twelfth chapter. Matthew's Gospel. Our focus will be on verses 15 through 21, but we will begin reading at verse 14 of Matthew chapter 12. Let us briefly pray before reading this portion of God's Word. Almighty God and our Father in heaven, we, we your people, have come into your presence to worship your name and to hear Christ himself speak to us through his word read and preached and sung. We ask that now as we come to this portion of the service in which a weak and inadequate servant who is an under-shepherd, represents before this congregation as an ambassador of Christ, his shepherding love and care, that the blessed Holy Spirit will open every heart to receive this word, and that you will do what only you can do, effectually draw, apply the word of the living God, which you have divinely inspired and given to us inerrant in the whole and in the part, that you will apply it to every heart here, that your people may grow in grace and be granted perseverance, and that those among us who are lost and undone may even this day find a Savior in Christ as they are found of him. Hear our prayer, for we ask these things in the name of Christ, the head and king of his church. Amen. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, beginning with verse 14. This is the word of God. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. And he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. This is a text that is given to the people of God to encourage us in our Christian walk as we persevere in this present evil age. It is a text that takes us all the way back to eternity past, applies to the present, and points us to the certain future that we have in Christ our Lord. It is a text that tells us about the call of Jesus Christ, his commission given to him by the Father, about his gentleness to his people and his certain victory in this world. You will recall last week we saw that Jesus did battle with the Pharisees, the legalists, and that with numbers of arguments he routed them. And the result of that was, according to verse 14, their hatred and their determination that they would take the life of the Son of God, that they intended to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ in their hatred and bitterness of him because of his exposure of their false ways, their false heart, and their false religion. And in the midst of this, we also see that the Lord Jesus avoids, for the time being, this conflict, walks away. Many come following him, and he heals them 
And this text is applied in particular because we read in verse 19, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. That is to say, one of the evidences of Messiahship is that he does his work very quietly and does not attempt to draw attention to himself. But I'm convinced that this text is not only given for that reason, because it is not only that verse that is cited from Isaiah 42, but this entire section that we have read this morning in our Old Testament lesson that is cited from Isaiah 42. Here we are given three truths about Jesus, and I want us to look at those truths and take encouragement from them. The first encouragement is this, his call as servant, and we find it here in verse 18. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. His call as servant. Now remember, Isaiah 42 is the first of a series of suffering servant passages in Isaiah. The culmination of which is, of course, those passages with which we are most familiar in Isaiah 53. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He is the servant who would come, who would live, who would die, who would go to a cross, who would be raised from the dead, who would ascend to heaven. All of that is found and more in the suffering servant passages of Isaiah. And this is the first of them that is cited here, Isaiah 42. Now remember, Matthew, all through the gospel, is intent to show us that Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. And we have another fulfillment here as he cites this passage. What do we see when we look at Jesus as servant and look at verse 18? We first see that Jesus, the servant, is chosen. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. And this takes our thoughts all the way back to eternity past because we ask, who was it that was chosen? It was Christ. For what was he chosen? Who chose him and when? And the answer to that question is, he was chosen in the intra-Trinitarian council of God. This is the plan of the triune God to save his people from our sins. The Father chose the Son to an office, and that office was to stand in our place as our mediator and intercessor. He was chosen, first of all, to come that he might take a body, that he might become a man, that he might obey the law that we broke, and he was chosen as mediator that he might die, that he would go to a cross and there become our surety, bearing the legal obligations of his people so that we do not owe them any more. This is, this is the, the, the proclamation of an everlasting gospel, and an everlasting gospel only is worthy of an everlasting God. This is the triune God in council. None, none can prevail against this purpose. None can prevail against this plan to redeem his people because Jesus is the chosen servant. But also we learn of this servant of the Lord that he is beloved of his father. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. How could it be otherwise? One in essence with the Father in being, and yet distinct in person. There was eternal fellowship among the members of the Trinity, loving one another with infinite, eternal, and unchangeable love. Always the Son as the object of the Father's love and the object of His eternal delight. But he also loves him well as mediator, the one chosen to this office of mediator between God and man. And people of God, think of this. 
If the Father's love rests on Christ and we are in Christ, then his love also rests upon us. And if that love is an eternal love and we are chosen in him eternally, then that love for us is an everlasting love as well. Jesus is the servant chosen. Jesus is the servant beloved. But according to this verse also, Jesus is the servant anointed. Look at the latter part of verse 18. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Jesus the servant is anointed by the Holy Spirit, which of course is what Messiah means, the anointed one. He is anointed by the Holy Spirit with all of the gifts and graces that would be needed to fulfill his commission to which the Father sent him. That when the wrath of God came upon him and consumed him in our place, he is offering of himself in the eternal spirit, according to Hebrews 9.14, enabled him to offer a sacrifice that can purify our consciences and this proclaims justice to the nations because justice is settled in the cross of Jesus Christ. So we find here Jesus the servant chosen, Jesus the servant the beloved, Jesus the servant who is anointed. And this is that old doctrine of the covenant of redemption that our fathers so loved to preach. You know, this doctrine of the covenant of redemption, this eternal counsel of God in which the father chose his people, the son determined that he would come According to the Father's commission to die for his people, the Spirit of God promising that he would draw his people, this wondrous covenant of redemption is a theme that pervades the Bible and yet is rarely heard in the church today. When do you hear of this in the evangelical churches today? And yet I am absolutely convinced that had this, had this wondrous truth been preached and proclaimed, that so many of the false doctrines that have invaded the church would not be among us today, that liberalism would not have overwhelmed the church as it has in so many segments today. Because from this truth, this wondrous doctrine flows so many other truths and those truths back into it and surround it. This is a wonderful truth indeed. Consider, people of God. That the Father, in His eternal love, commissioned Christ. The Holy Spirit furnishes Him for His work. Christ came and fulfilled His commission by shedding His blood on the cross. The Holy Spirit determined that He would enable Him in His human nature to accomplish the purpose for which He came and then would call and draw the people of God to the Father. There is solid ground here. This should thrill your soul and it should establish your walk. For in this great commission, Jesus said, Father, Father, I will go. I will die for them. I will bear the penalty of the law in their place. Let the vials of your almighty and awful wrath fall on me, not on them. I will save your people. I will secure them to the end. Come what may, they will be mine, purchased by my own shed blood. Jesus the servant who came... For you to do this, beloved, chosen, anointed. And so we have a gospel that is grounded in the Trinitarian counsel of God. What then can destroy this rock? If indeed your salvation is founded in this Trinitarian plan of God, what can destroy this foundation? Nothing, for it is certain. One of the old divines spoke of a trinity of securities. And indeed, is that not grand language? A trinity of securities. 
that the Father who loved you from eternity would send a Son who would come and purchase you, that the Spirit of God would call you. Indeed, the covenant of redemption. Dwell upon it often. Think upon it often. Think upon this. Think upon the fact that that the Father chose His Son, and He chose Him who was choice, who was excellent. He chose you also, did He not? Not because we were excellent, for we were anything but excellent. Looking at us as fallen sinners, he yet chose us in union with him who is excellent. And if I am chosen in him, I am chosen in him. I am kept in him. And if I am beloved in him, I am beloved in him. And if the Spirit of God anointed him for his work, then the Spirit of God also promises to seal me, the believer, for time and for eternity. Oh, people of God, dwell upon it. Think upon it. Ground your life upon the fact that there is this trinity of securities surrounding and filling all of your heart and all of your life. In the words of the old hymn writer John Kent, firm as the lasting heals, this covenant shall endure, whose potent shalls and wills make every blessing sure. When ruin shakes all nature's frame, its jots and tittles remain the same. This great covenant None can change it. None can alter it. None can shake it because it stems from the infinite, eternal love and grace and mercy of God. That's the first thing we learn of Jesus in this passage, that he is the servant, chosen, beloved, anointed. The second thing we learn for our encouragement from this text is of Jesus' gentle spirit, His gentle spirit, and we learn of this in three ways in this passage. First of all, we are told at the first part of verse 19 that he does not quarrel. Verse 19, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He does not quarrel. Of what does Isaiah speak, and Matthew also by divine inspiration? When it says that Jesus will not quarrel, the Messiah, when he comes, will not quarrel, it speaks of his humility. It speaks of his utter condescension, that the Son of God came down and in humility shows love to his people. Here is no militaristic Messiah who would wipe the Roman Empire off the map. This is the one who came and chose to suffer and to be put to shame and was willing to bear our affronts in our place. Why did he do this? Why did he not become ostentatious? Why did he not cry aloud in the streets? Why did he not choose to quarrel? He did this because he would be led as a lamb to the slaughter. He did that for you and for me, child of God. We're reminded of this by Peter in his first epistle. When he speaks of the suffering believer, he says, For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Do you see his gentle spirit, his willingness to suffer, 
his willingness to bear reproach, that he might be led as a lamb to the slaughter in the place of sinners like you and me. But we also see the gentle spirit of Jesus, his gentleness, in that he does not trample. He does not trample. Look at verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break. Now we need to see this bruised reed and smoking flax reference in light of the invitation that we have read already in the 11th chapter of Matthew, in which Jesus says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest unto your souls. He comes to us, those burdened under the law, those grieving under sin, those who could not cleanse our own hearts, and he says, come to me, come to me, come to me in my meekness, come to me in my gentleness, come and respond to my invitation. I will cleanse your heart, I will make it right, I will do all that is necessary that you be saved from this awful load and burden. And now he speaks here of the bruised reed, that reed that might be used for measuring or, or to, to stand upon or, or perhaps to be, to be taken and made into a musical instrument such as a flute. But now it's a bruised reed. There it is, perhaps, in the rushes, and it's broken. And someone might say, what's it good for? It's just ready to be stepped on and and to be snapped. What's it good for? My life is like a bruised reed. What is my life good for anyway? And in gentleness, Jesus comes, and he says to us, as the servant of the Lord, I will not break you. I will not destroy you. A bruised reed I will not break. I will bind your broken heart. I will heal your wounded spirit. I will comfort you when you are burdened. I will not trample upon you. But not only will he not trample, but he also will not quench. For we read on in verse 20, a smoldering wick he will not quench. The smoking flax. Do you see the image? The wick of a lamp that is ready to go out and and to smolder not giving any light, not, not shining in the room, no, no life in it, really, just smoke. Little knowledge, little faith, much darkness, much weakness. Do you see your life to be like that very often? I'm just ready to be snuffed out. What am I anyway? I'm just a smoking flax. But you see, Jesus comes in his gentleness, in his almighty gentleness in his omnipotent compassion. He comes to you, believer, and he says, I will not extinguish you. What little life is there comes from me. What little light is there comes from me, and I will see that it grows. I will send more light. I will flame the flax. I will inform your mind. I will enlighten your understanding. I will carry on the work of small beginnings that to you seems as if it's smoldering out of existence. I will carry it on to its full and glorious end. I will not snuff you out. And so the gentleness of Jesus comes to us, his people, this morning as we endure temptation and sin and we struggle in all sorts of ways, sometimes that seem to be so heavy and to be such a crushing load. And you say, I feel so weak. Yes, but he is not weak, he is strong. And you say, I feel so incapable. Ah, yes, but all of your sufficiency is in him who is infinitely capable. 
Or perhaps you say, I'm so weighted down with a sense of sin. Yes, but he bore every sin of yours, believer. Every single one of them he bore on the cross of Calvary. He bore them in your place. Your guilt has been removed by him. And perhaps you see, say, I see no help in me. I'm of no more use than a bruised reed and a smoking flax. And let me tell you, if you see that, that's a good thing to see. And it's a good place to be. Because if you're there... <laughs> If you see yourself as just a bruised reed, just a smoking flax, then you are the one whom the Holy Spirit is showing your true heart and your need of a Redeemer and your need of a Savior. That is a good place to be. And let me tell you something. Young person, let me tell you. The older you grow in grace, the more you grow in the Lord, the older you get as a Christian, the more you will see yourself to be a bruised reed, a smoking flax. The more you will see your... your total and complete need of a gentle Savior, a Redeemer who comes and promises to heal your wounds and to bear your burdens. The gentle Jesus. Don't you find that to be an encouragement, people of God? I do. What a wondrous thing to know that the Lord Jesus is such a gentle Savior. Or perhaps you say this, you know, as I look at the world and I listen to NPR as I go in to, the, to work in the mornings. I read the New York Times or whatever it may be. You know, I feel that his work in this world is so very small. I don't hear anything about Jesus on NPR, and when I do, it's not the right thing. Uh, where's Christ? What, what's he doing in this world? I feel that his work is so small. I feel sometimes as if I'm almost alone. When I look at the overwhelming might of this present evil age, I I just, I feel overwhelmed by it. Well, that leads us to the third point. The third thing we see about Jesus, which is his certain victory. We've seen Jesus the servant. We've seen the gentleness of Jesus. But now we see the gentle Jesus who is the servant. We see his certain victory. His victory, the victory of the one who brings justice to victory. You see it in verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. He brings justice to victory. What can we say about this justice? Let me tell you many things we can say. About this justice, we first of all can say the justice that Jesus brings to victory is a justice accomplished, a justice accomplished, accomplished by his death on the cross, which was a satisfaction of divine justice. Do you see? The work of Jesus on the cross, his atonement is Godward. It satisfies his rightful divine anger against us for our sin. This is what the Father did. I have this rightful anger, and yet I love these people. Will you go? Yes, I will go, Father. I will go, and I will take the just vengeance of your wrath for them in their place. And so Jesus came, and there on the cross he bore stern, inflexible justice, as we sang in our middle hymn this morning. Oh, the stern, inflexible justice of Almighty God poured out upon Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who suffered for us. Believer, Jesus has brought justice to victory. 
And as Jesus is at the Father's right hand, so are you in him. You are completely righteous, as really accepted as Jesus is really accepted. Jesus' sacrifice is described in Scripture as a sweet savor unto the Lord. That means that it's acceptable to God, acceptable to him. Believers, think of your lives. Think of your lives as a field of perfumed flowers and the Lord stooping down to to regale himself with the, the wonder of the fragrance of your life. You say, I don't look at my life that way. Begin to. Because the sweet fragrance of the atoning work of Jesus Christ has now been spread over and through and in your life. And he sees you in union with his son. And he can stoop down and smell this sweet fragrance and he can enjoy you because his son brought justice to victory. A justice that once was against us but now is for us. For if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What can we say of the justice that he brings to victory? It is a justice accomplished on the cross. But also, it is a justice that was declared. It was declared when Jesus rose bodily from the tomb. And all who look upon him as that risen Savior see that the fact of justice Justice that has been met in the cross is now declared for all to see. A justice declared, but it also is a justice that is pled. For in his ascension work in heaven, Jesus pleads his blood and righteousness and all of his perfect merit in the place of sinners as your great intercessor. Again, as one of the hymn writers says, for all that come to God by him, salvation, he demands, points to their names upon his breast and spreads his wounded hands. It is also not only a justice accomplished, a justice declared, a justice pled, but it soon will be a justice displayed. When he returns, when he comes again. Jesus the just who went to a cross in that day will ride his war horse and will shake thrones until they fall and collapse. Tyrants will fall and sinners will be judged. The scriptures teach us of his justice. The scriptures teach us that there is a day appointed when the one who died on the cross, who rose from the dead, who ascended into heaven, who intercedes for his people, will descend from heaven. And he will not come to suffer, but he will come this time to judge with stern inflexible justice. On some occasion, make room in your life to read the autobiography of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I love that man. He's the best Presbyterian Baptist I've ever read. (laughs) One of his favorite authors was Thomas Manton, the Puritan. So I can like Spurgeon because I'm reading a lot of Manton when I read Spurgeon. Great, great, great man. And his autobiography, you can get the abridged version, and it's only a thousand pages. (laughs) But Spurgeon, when he was a child, was very, very perplexed. At six years old, Spurgeon was reading the scriptures with with great, uh, uh, great force and energy out loud. And he was asked to read the scriptures in morning prayer. He lived with his grandfather, who was a congregational minister. 
And he would read every morning. He would come to this, this passage in the book of Revelation that spoke of the bottomless pit. And he said, Grandfather, what does that mean? What is the bottomless pit? What does that mean? Oh, child, go on. Keep reading. So, you know, he wanted an answer to his question. So this is what he did. Every morning when he read, he read about the bottomless pit. Well, it's the Word of God. It's not too edifying to read every morning about the bottomless pit. And so finally, his grandfather said, Child, what bothers you? Well, grandfather, he says, I've seen baskets. I've seen baskets to the bottoms fallen out. But when you fall through the bottom of the basket, you eventually hit the floor. Something, there's something there. What does this mean? That there's a, a bottomless pit. And now let me read to you from his autobiography. He says, I can remember the horror of my mind when my dear grandfather told me what his idea of the bottomless pit was. There's a deep pit, and the soul is falling down. Oh, how fast it is falling. There, the last ray of light at the top has disappeared, and it falls on, on, on. And so it goes on falling, on, on, on for a thousand years. Is it not getting near the bottom yet? Won't it stop? No, no. The cry is on, on, on. I've been falling a million years. Am I not near the bottom yet? No, you are no nearer the bottom yet. It is the bottomless pit. It is on, on, on. And so the soul goes on falling perpetually into a deeper depth still, falling forever into the bottomless pit. On, 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 into the pit that has no bottom. Woe without termination, without hope of its coming to a conclusion. And as I read these passages in Scripture that speak of the return of Christ and the day of the Lord and the day of judgment, and I try to come to grips with what eternal punishment really means, I'm speechless. But then think of this. Jesus on a cross, the Son of God become man. His infinite nature giving to his finite sufferings infinite value. So that for you, believer, when that day of judgment comes, bold shall I stand in that great day. How bold before the justice of God. How bold before the holiness of God. How may I stand boldly before this great God? The answer is because in some inscrutable way, the Son of God bore your bottomless pit. He fell in for you. He dove in for you. He has borne your infinite punishment in your place so that you are now a trophy of grace and justice has been brought to victory for every child of God. But listen, if you are outside of Christ and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ and you are lost and undone and you have not put your trust, don't listen to NPR, don't listen to the Wall Street Journal, listen to the Bible, the Word of God that tells you that you are in sober and solemn danger. 
Turn, believe, repent, put your trust in Christ alone, who only can save sinners from the oncoming wrath and justice of God, because he bore the wrath of God and took the penalty of his justice in the place of every sinner who believes in him. Come to him, believe in him, respond to his invitation. May the Spirit of God enable you. But, as we look at Jesus the victor, there's one other thing to see in this passage. Because, yes, Jesus is the victor in bringing justice to completion. But also, according to verse 21, he's the conqueror of the nations. Do you see his victory at the end of verse 21? And in his name, the Gentiles will hope, the nations will hope in Jesus Christ. Isaiah puts it, the isle shall wait for his law. And here, by divine inspiration, there's a change. There's the reference to his name that brings hope to the nations. Why the name? Because there is only one name under heaven whereby men must be saved, and that is the name of Christ Jesus. Not Buddha, not Mohammed, not Confucius, not a philosophy of life. It is Christ. Christ and his name. He only can redeem. He only can save sinners from our awful sins. And here the Lord Jesus is conquering the nations in two ways. First, this verse anticipates the fulfillment of the Great Commission. To go into the world and to disciple the nations, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And so it is anticipating that. Jesus Christ now is reigning and ruling until all his enemies are subdued under his feet. Those who now are his children brought to him by saving grace through the work of the Holy Spirit, as well as the promise of a final day of judgment. And so, when it says to us, in his name the Gentiles will hope, it promises the fulfillment of the Great Commission, but also it promises the consummation of the redemptive purpose. You see what we've done in the sermon? We've begun all the way back in the eternal plan of God. The Father choosing His Son who would come and die. The Spirit of God anointing Him to fulfill His task. The Spirit of God working in the midst of His people as a gentle Savior and now bringing them all the way to the consummation of His redemptive purpose as the nations hope in Him. We read in Revelation 5.9, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. But you know, you may say, Pastor, I see that in the Word, and I believe the Word. But I must tell you, it seems a long way off to me, and it seems hard to see, as I live in this present evil age, that this world is going to be redeemed by Christ, that he will return and establish justice in the earth. It's very difficult for me to see from where I stand now. Listen, Richard Sibbs the Puritan has written beautifully on this. Hear what he says. If we look to the present state of the church of Christ, it is as Daniel in the midst of lions, as a lily amongst thorns, as a ship not only tossed but almost covered with waves. It is so low that the enemies think that they have buried Christ in regard of his gospel in the grave, and there they think to keep him from rising. 
But Christ, as he rose in his person, so will he roll away all stones and rise again in his church. How little support hath the church and cause of Christ at this day. How strong a conspiracy is against it. The spirit of Antichrist is now lifted up and marcheth furiously. Things seem to hang on a small and invisible thread. But our comfort is that Christ liveth and reigneth and standeth on Mount Zion in defense of them that stand for him. And when states and kingdoms shall dash one against another, Christ will have care of his own children and cause, seeing there is nothing else in the world that he much esteemeth. At this very time, the delivery of his church and the ruin of his enemies is in working. We see no things in motion till Christ hath done his work, and then we shall see that the Lord reigneth. And hear this. Christ and his church, when they are at the lowest, are nearest rising. His enemies at the highest are nearest a downfall. That's the promise of our text. That's Jesus, the hope of the nations. That's his promise that he will conquer this world unto himself. Isaiah says he will see the travail of his soul and he shall be satisfied. You know what that means? It means that when Jesus died, he actually accomplished redemption and those for whom he shed his blood will be saved. He will redeem a people of his own. Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession, the Father says to the Son in the second psalm. All right, let's bring it to conclusion. I told you there was encouragement in this text, if you will accept it, if you will receive it, if you will believe it by faith. There is encouragement in this text for you, believer, where we see Jesus the servant, chosen, beloved, anointed, We see Jesus, the gentle, humble, loving, tender, gracious. He will not break you. He will not quench you. But he will keep you and he will love you. And we see Jesus, the victor, the one who brings justice through his cross, the one who promises to bring justice on the earth when he returns. Who could not, as a believer in Christ, find that to encourage his soul when you go to work on Monday, when you listen to the news, when you struggle with temptation and sin, or when you see your culture deteriorating around you, knowing that Jesus rules, he reigns, he's in control, he's accomplishing his redemptive purpose. So let this encourage you, but not only let it encourage you, let it impassion you. Some of you need help here. Yeah, you say, I believe these things. I know they're in the Word. I read them for myself. But where's your passion for the kingdom? Where's your passion to spread the gospel? Where's your passion to seek Him in prayer? Where's your passion for the church? Where's your passion for the people of God? Where's your passion? Let it encourage you, but also let it, let it impassion you for the cause of God and truth, for the sake of His gospel, for the sake of His kingdom. Let it impassion you, I say. Listen to the words of Andrew Murray. As we seek to find out why, with such millions of Christians, the real army of God that is fighting the hosts of darkness is so small, the only answer is lack of heart. The enthusiasm of the kingdom is missing. 
And that is because there is so little enthusiasm for the king. If I, if you, lack enthusiasm for the kingdom, it's because we lack enthusiasm for the king. Let that not be a part of my life or yours. Let that not be a part of Covenant Presbyterian Church. Up! Get to work! Do what he's called you to do. Labor for the one who loved you and gave himself for you. Be impassioned for missions. Be impassioned for the cause of Christ. Be impassioned for your brothers and sisters. Be impassioned for his word. Be impassioned to live for Jesus. Be impassioned for his worship. For he is worthy of your worship. Be impassioned to worship him. If you lack enthusiasm for the kingdom, it is because you lack enthusiasm for the king. Believe, repent, change. Let that not abide in your life. Be encouraged and be impassioned. God's people said, Amen.